Welcome to the College Sports Insider, presented by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. I'm Jack Ford. The issue of concussions, how do they occur? How should they be treated? How can they be prevented? A major concern to those involved, especially in college sports, players, parents, coaches, administrators, institutions. As a consequence, the largest study of concussions in sport ever conducted was launched in 2014. Dr. Tom McAllister, who is the chair of the Indiana University School of Medicine Department of Psychiatry, is one of three principal investigators leading this study, and we're delighted that he's joining us now to talk about it a little bit. Dr. Nice to have you here with us. Great to be here with you. Let's start off with a a general picture. Um, You know, we are so used to, in terms of of medical injuries that are suffered in the sports world, uh, being able to identify it. This is exactly what you tore in your knee, and this is how we have to replace it, and this is the surgery, and it's going to take you this long to recover, and here's what the expectations are when you come back. But that's not the world of concussions. Why is it, generally speaking, that we are still struggling to understand so much about concussions and consequences? Well, it's a a great question. I I think a couple of things are worth uh, mentioning. One is that um, unlike some of the other injuries that you mentioned, um, it's not something that uh, shows up uh, immediately unless the person um, has something on the more severe end, is unconscious, unable to move on the field, then it's obvious that something has gone wrong. On the other hand, a lot of people uh, who develop the symptoms that we um, end up diagnosing as having a concussion um, frequently will not even report symptoms until after the game or after the practice. Um, uh, and it's not immediately apparent that they had the injury. And um, some of the symptoms can be somewhat nonspecific so that you could attribute it to fatigue or dehydration or um various other causes. So that makes it more of a challenge. Do we even have at this juncture a universally accepted definition of concussion? Well, it's hard to get universally (laughs) acceptance about anything, but I I think that um, the definition changes. You can look at the Department of Defense definition of a mild brain injury. And I should say at this point that for um, from my perspective, concussion really is a, uh, a mild brain injury. So mm-hmm. if you take the various definitions that have been proposed for sport-related concussion and you compare them, for example, to definitions of mild brain injury from the Centers for Disease Control, the Department of Defense, um, at their core, they're pretty darn similar. So they have uh, some sort of plausible event in which a force was acting on the head. And as a result of that force or that blow, uh, you have some interruption in brain function. And that's usually manifested by um, being dazed or confused or having incomplete memory uh, for the event. So I think for people who, who are listening to this who uh, may have had a concussion, I think it's a pretty familiar kind of story where you sort of come to um, wake up and somebody's saying, you know, how are you doing? Are you okay or whatever? Or you're a little bit confused about uh, what time of the game it is or where you've been playing, what the score is and so forth. So that's a manifestation of the brain's normal ability to process time and sequence events has been uh, interrupted by the blow to the head. Yeah. I, I 
tell the story. I, I my my literally the last play of my college career. I'm playing football for Yale. We're playing Harvard, and with a couple minutes left in the game, I'm out cold. Literally face down on the field, out cold. My wife hates that photograph <laughs> of me. Um, but I remember in high school, actually a pile up. I was a quarterback, and I get back in the huddle, and I start calling the next play. And my friend next to me looks at me. He says, "Hey, man, you all right?" I said, yeah, yeah, I'm okay, a little shaken up. He says, well, then why are you calling our Pop Warner plays? Oh, dear. And I had no <laughs> no recognition that I'm calling the plays from you know when we were in eighth grade, not the plays from when we we're now in twelfth grade. And and looking not back good. on it, I remember watching the film of the game, having no recollection of the game, but I played through yeah. the whole thing. I actually had a pretty right. good game, as a matter of fact, which is sort of <laughs> I guess the irony of all of that. So you know, it, it points to some of the things that you've talked about here in terms of recognition. Let let me shift focus for a minute, and then we'll come back to some issues here. But let's sure. shift focus to to this study. All right. I talked about uh, got launched in 2014, uh, the largest concussion study in, in for sports that has been done so far. Uh, tell me who's involved in in driving this study, and then I'll get to you in a couple minutes about what the the, the processes are going to be. Sure, for the study. sure. Well, it's really interesting. I think that um, uh, back you know five maybe ten years ago, there were two major forces that um, uh, came together to result in people having a great interest in in uh, learning more about concussion. Um, obviously, one was uh, an increasing awareness that repetitive concussions and perhaps repetitive head impacts even without concussion in the context of sport, football in particular, um, uh, was a topic that we needed to know more about. Um, in the past, as you said, in your own experience, it was part of the game. It was a ding. You saw stars. You got a, you know, you got a bad hit, and that's just... That's just part of it. Shook, um, it, off, shook it off and got yeah. back in the huddle. Yeah, and I have a whole talk I could give, not yeah. today, but <laughs> on, on how mild brain injury and concussion have been portrayed in the media. It was, it was a right. butt of jokes. Right. Um, and then uh, at the same time, um, the uh, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan um, made uh, clear to the military that uh, brain injury and specifically uh, mild brain injury um, which is probably an unfortunate misnomer in that context. But nevertheless, uh, it became clear that concussion was of great importance to them because it became a very common injury in the uh, theater of war uh, during that time. And so um, uh, Dr. Brian Hainline from the NCAA and uh, Colonel Dallas Hack and others began to think, well, um, you know, this is this injury is something that we both have an interest in, um, a shared interest. Uh, what if we were to pool our resources and come together and and uh, have a, decide what are the key findings that we need to uh, pin down about this injury, and could we uh, put together a study that would help address this? So when we look five years down the road, would we have the answers that we don't have now? And that's really how it came to pass. There was a a conference that was convened in 2013 with a group of people who've been uh, researchers and clinicians in this area. Um, they identified a series of things that we knew and a series of things that we didn't know and really wanted to know. And um, the Department of Defense and the NCAA formed something called the Grand Alliance, um, which was a, uh, um, an agreement to fund a couple of initiatives to understand more about concussion. So that was the genesis of it. Right. And it was, as, as I recall, again, 2014, we're now sort of three years into it, about $30 million, I believe, has, has been invested by right. both organizations, Department of Defense and the NCAA, to, to fund this up to this point. 
explain to me then the 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 process, if you will, of a sure. study like this. How are you going to go about gathering your information? <laughs> yeah, it's been uh, it's been a fascinating process. So, um, one of the limitations um, that we uh, collectively in the field were faced with is that um, most of the studies on concussion uh, up until this time had been fairly small numbers. Um, number one, so probably the largest one was an earlier study that was done by the NCAA and one of my co-PIs, Mike McRae, was a, a leader of that study and had probably, give or take, 200 uh, uh, folks with concussion in that study. But most of the other studies were much smaller than that. So there was a limited pool from which we could draw information. Um, perhaps more importantly, most of the studies were done in American football players. So we knew um, very little about concussion in women. Uh, we knew very little about concussion sustained in other sports. Um, for all we knew, uh, the natural history of the injury might differ from sport to sport. And so um, it, was, it was out of that that uh, uh, they came together and said, this is what we need to do. And then the, the logistics of it was, okay, we needed a lot of schools then. Um, and the real fundamental uh, piece, which I think sets this study off from a lot of other efforts in the past, is that uh, there was a commitment made to study people in advance of their injury. So how, how do you mean? How is that done? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, so basically, um, if a school, an NCAA school or one of the military service academies, and we have four of them that are participating, um, expressed, uh, expressed an interest in participating, then part of the commitment is to say we are going to approach all uh, NCAA uh, varsity athlete teams and invite um, the participants to um, enroll in the study. And ultimately, we're talking about somewhere in the vicinity of 30 30 schools? Uh, that's right. So currently right. we have uh, four um, military service academies right. uh, that are participating in 26 uh, civilian um, institutions so right. with a mix of D1, 2, and 3 schools. So pretty nice, broad, uh, diverse group. All right. You're going to invite them all to participate. How? What will they be doing? Right. So, so essentially what happens is a logistical nightmare for them. <laughs> uh, so uh, when athletes arrive on campus um, uh, in the summer or early fall, then they're uh, invited to participate. If they consent, then they undergo a battery of tests, which assess a couple of different domains uh, that uh, are often um, impacted by concussion. So a 20-minute uh, test of memory, attention, and concentration, and then they'll have their balance and that is, tested. You know, just so people understand, because I found it fascinating, um, they'll, they sort of give you a string of words, and you have to sort of repeat those words and see how you did there. Right. Um, a couple of others I, I thought were very interesting. So, tell me some of the other things that, yeah, that also, they do as this sort of baseline beforehand. Right. So um, the a lot of the um, uh, cognitive uh, domains that get impaired with a concussion one is memory. So short-term memory, that's the list learning test. That So you give you expose people to a list of words and then uh, you distract them with something else and you ask them uh, in a bit how much they remember. Um, attention is another area. So being able to focus your attention is a problem. And reaction time. So typically after a, a concussion or mild brain injury, people's reaction time will slow down. So you might be uh, see a flashing light and have to push a button if a certain sequence shows up in that way, and you measure how quickly somebody can do them. All right. So you've got sort of a working file on them. Right. It's, it's, I'm exactly. sort of putting it in pedestrian terms as opposed to no, medical exactly terms. But basically right. you have a working yeah. baseline file. Here's what they were before they had any injuries. Yeah. So we've got. And you said if all the, the student-athletes volunteer, you're going to have... 
thousands. We do. We have yeah. uh, upwards of um, twenty nine thousand. All right, <laughs> students gives you a bit of a bit larger pool than the two hundred <laughs> that we used before. All right, so so you start off, and and you know that's the first step in the process. What else is going to happen then as part of this study? Well, we get a fairly uh, extensive background history. So one of the um, one of the mysteries in the area is that you can take a um, uh, hundred people who have what we would all agree is a concussion or a mild brain injury, and then study them. Um, you know, let's say three weeks later, and probably 90 of them um, will have recovered um, pretty much completely by their report. Uh, so they're feeling fine even when you exercise them or they exert themselves, they're fine. But then there's that 10 that don't. And so one of the mysteries, and it's not just true of sport concussion, it's true in other kinds of, of mild brain injuries. There's a uh, some people who don't get better the way everybody else does, or perhaps the way they're predicted to get better. And one of the um, puzzles in this field um, that we've been working on for decades is trying to understand um, what are the factors which um, put one person on the path to full recovery. It was sort of a non-event. Um, you apparently were not too um, uh, <laughs> impaired by your last play in Ho- your college hopefully, career. Hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, we'll check with your wife on that. <laughs> she might have a different opinion on that. <laughs> but um, uh, for other people, it can become a, a long-lasting and at times even a disabling event. And so what is that? Why is that? And so we get a lot of background information. How many concussions did you have in the past? Do you have... Um, other kinds of medical conditions, medications, et cetera. So that's another piece of it. We check people's balance because that's another domain that is typically impaired after concussion. And so uh, what that does is, as you said, give us a profile of what somebody looks like before they're injured. And then if the medical staff on a given team says, wow, this guy had a concussion or this woman had a concussion, then we have a, a baseline against which to compare it and against which to measure uh, return to... Um, so uh, so essentially you have them try to replicate those same right. tests that they did and see how they respond to exactly. all of that and give you that comparison, those comparison points. Exactly. Yeah. You, you mentioned... Um, Issues, and you talked about the one being, you know, why why do certain people recover differently? Uh, when you look at other issues, um, and, and I know this is one of the things you've talked about, is is that um, how is it that the brain heals? Are you hoping yeah. that you'll learn something more than we that that we don't know right now about just how the brain heals itself? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that. Um, uh, there are a couple of really interesting things um, uh, related to that. One is that um, because we're able to study people before they're injured, it's like no other paradigm in, in brain injury research because we can say, okay, here's how this person's brain was working beforehand. Here's the effect of the injury. But more importantly, here's the trajectory uh, around which they're recovering um, and getting better. And by being able to pinpoint uh, down the road, by being able to pinpoint the factors which are impeding somebody's recovery, then we may have a window into how to intervene in those folks and perhaps intervene in other people more broadly to, uh, to, speed, um, to speed recovery. So it's, uh, it, this really is a window into not just sport-related concussion, but the brain as a whole. And that's in part uh, speaks to why the military um, service academies and the Department of Defense are, are, are partners here because they know that um, folks in the military have increased rates of brain injury even in uh, peacetime. 
uh, because of some of the activities they're engaged in. And they know that a lot of them, the injuries occur in garrison or in training or what have you. And so what we learned from this study uh, is going to be applicable to a much broader um, group of the population. One of the things that seemed to be puzzling, uh, certainly to the to the public, and I, I would suspect even more so to you as somebody who, yeah. who lives in this world, is why it is that you can have athletes in a particular sport, and and let's let's use football, sure. college football, what, what what I know, and you can have certain athletes who um, can can uh, find themselves suffering from a concussion, and they come back fine. Right. You know, no residual difficulties, right. either short term or long term, and then you can have certain athletes who for whatever reason, just don't either never bounce back from it or it takes them a much longer time to bounce back. Is there something you're hoping that you'll be able to glean from this study that will help to answer those questions? Yeah, absolutely. So um, a uh, subgroup of this 29,000 people who are uh, enrolled in the study, and more particularly the uh, I think we now have data on about uh, over 2,000 folks who've had a concussion. And the subgroup of these folks are undergoing what we call uh, a series of advanced research studies. So uh, my colleague Steve Brolio in Michigan is running the, uh, the clinical um, study, and then Mike McRae, who I mentioned earlier, is running uh, what we call the advanced research course. So this subgroup of folks, um, before uh, they, they undergo... Um, multimodal MRI imaging, so we're getting very sophisticated pictures of their brain. Um, we are taking blood samples um, to get clues into some of the uh, genetic determinants of who might get better and who might take longer to get better after a concussion. And uh, a very interesting group are wearing sensors in their uh, helmets so that we can count how often and how hard uh, they're getting hit, let's say in a, in a season of uh, football so that we can uh, begin to look at um, maybe it's not maybe it's a combination it's the brain that somebody brings into their contest and then it's the biomechanics of a particular hit and um, maybe it's their uh, individual background all these things probably factor into um, what their recovery trajectory looks like if you look at the notion of concussion and you touched on this a little bit earlier in terms of, of diagnosing um, you know, if you blood a knee, you've, you've got an imaging test right. that you can do for it. You can you can do blood tests that will show you all sorts of things. Right. You know, you look in the in the world of cancer care and treatment, uh, heart disease. You know, after you've had a heart incident, there can be blood tests exactly. that can tell yeah. the physician here's what's happening here. Is there some sort of realistic either expectation or maybe call it a hope? that we might at some point in time, let's stay, start with imaging, reach a point where some form of imaging can be done that can help us either in terms of the, the diagnosis uh, or even, even getting a sense beforehand whether somebody might be more susceptible yeah. to brain inju injury than somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is uh, really a couple of the more exciting areas uh, in the field and in particularly, um, particular, this study is going to shed some light on this. So. The uh, imaging techniques that we're doing are really um, uh, very sophisticated, and of course they keep changing, so they keep getting better. But uh, the hope is that um, the uh, some components of the imaging, and, and quite possibly a combination of the different image sequences, uh, will be able to say, yeah, we have a higher degree of certainty that you had a concussion 
than you when we're looking at your pictures and we're saying, eh, not so much. We're not there yet, um, but that certainly is the hope. I think um, the, uh, the genetic question is a really interesting one. So I think, um, and this is just me speculating at this point, although we've done some work on this, is I think it's quite possible that we all differ with respect to how we respond to a given head impact uh, genetically. So um, the impact triggers a series of biochemical events. If you're one of the people that um, sort of tamps down that cascade and sort of minimizes the damage, you may not have as severe um, a uh, recovery as somebody who um, has a, a gene that sort of escalates or exacerbates the um, uh, neurotrauma cascades. And uh, again, we're not there yet, um, but uh, we have a, uh, a lot of uh, excitement about being able to pinpoint a series of or an, an array of genes and copies of those genes that might make somebody more or less vulnerable to uh, the effects of concussion long term or even more likely to have a concussion. Let's talk a little bit about, um, I, again, we've, this study's only been in place since back in yeah. 2014. And the anticipation is with, with as I said, tens of thousands of subjects here over a period of time, there's going to be much more of an opportunity to learn from it. Um, but have you come up with some, some sort of preliminary, I don't know if you call them findings or thoughts or observations perhaps might be the best term to use, that you've been able to, to sort of share with some people? Yeah, I think so. I mean, basically, um, we're um, none of this will be definitive. Uh, we're right at the point now where we're um, um, analyzing large amounts of data and beginning to um, submit some of the some of the findings for peer review. So, um, I expect that sometime in the next uh, six to twelve months, we'll be able to. If we were having this conversation a year from now, we'd have a lot more data to share. But I think there are a couple of uh, areas that we're very interested in. One is this idea that, um, you know, we've been very dependent in the past on um, putting somebody, returning them to play when they tell us they're better. In other words, they're asymptomatic. And then we developed a little more, more sophistication. So, well, maybe we need to uh, stress you a little bit and do exertion and, and uh, full sports-specific activity before we do that. Um, and then we return to play. But Looking back at data in the past, it looks like there's um, what we're trying to avoid is this idea of um, repeat concussions within a short interval. And so this kind of um, graded exercise protocol and holding people out for a period of time, um, I think, has, uh, has great potential to reduce the risk of repeat concussion within a short interval, which, of course, is quite quite important for sure. people's longevity in the sport. And so are, forth. are you seeing with regard to that, that there's a, a, a greater awareness now on the part of the people who are making these decisions so that so that the, the time frame between injury and return, now people are being a little bit more cautious and spreading that out a little bit? Yeah, they are. So if uh, I think it's two things. One, um, a, a widespread adoption of this um, graded return, graded exercise return to play protocol has very naturally spread out the interval, um, uh, you know, from injury to return to play. So in the past, uh, you know, if it hadn't been the last play of your college career, the coach might have said, you okay? You okay? You're back in. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, and and I would have later. said, of course I'm okay, yeah. whether I was or not. 
right. you know, and the decision was being made by the the twenty year old or the twenty two year old. Right. Um, say, I'm fine. Put me exactly. in, coach. Well, it's exactly, and and what we're seeing now is that on average, again, big numbers on average, it's taking about um, fourteen to sixteen days to return. Uh, to full activity. That's a big difference, 15 minutes, 14 to 16 um, uh, days. But beyond that, I think one of the other areas we're very interested in is whether when someone feels that they're better and is no longer having the symptoms that we associate with concussion, does that necessarily mean the same thing as the brain being better? So in other words, it's quite possible um, and if you use other injuries as an analogy, your knee may feel better, but it doesn't mean it's better for the stress that you're about to subject right. it to if you go right back uh, to uh, full sports-specific activity. Well, in the same vein, is it the case that when an athlete reports to us, Coach, I'm better, um, and we put them through the, the uh, exertional protocols and they're still not having any symptoms, of course, I mean, they're saying that they don't have any symptoms, whether they're having them or not. Um, but even if, let's stipulate that they're uh, not having symptoms, um, that may not be the same thing as the brain being ready to uh, uh, be exposed to further uh, repetitive and vigorous head impacts. So we're hoping that some of the imaging findings, some of the um, uh, blood and, and fluid biomarker findings that we're engaged in, uh, will be able to give us some really good information on them. And what are we learning so far in terms of, uh, I, I guess the best term is, is where and how these are taking place. You know, is it taking place in the middle of the game? Is it yeah. taking place in practice? Is it taking place in combat? Is it taking place in something other than combat? Are we starting to gather some facts about that? We are. Um, so part of the uh, part of the data set that we we put together is uh, does cover those questions. So was this in a game, or was it in a practice, or was it not sport related? So sometimes people injure themselves outside of the sport. And that's about you know um, uh, you know two, three, four percent of the injuries are non-sport specific related. Um, a much greater number of concussions are occurring in practice than in the game in large measure because people spend a lot more time practicing than they do uh, in the game. So it's, it's still the case that if you just uh, say for an hour's worth of gameplay, comparing it to an hour's worth of practice, um, you're probably going to end up with more concussions in an hour of game than you are in practice. But nevertheless, because we spend so much time in practice, then if you want to really cut down on the number of um, of concussions, you have to look at what are we doing in practice and could we limit contact or injury in that context. And oh. to that end, the preseasons and the two-a-day right. kind of drills have gotten a lot of attention. Well, they've got, I mean, I, I tell the story when I'm in college, we're doing three weeks of two-days. Yeah. Um, those are gone. That's disappeared. That's fine. Uh, we look at your alma mater, Dartmouth College, yep. and, and Buddy Tevens, the coach there, is a very good friend of mine. And he years ago said, you know what, we're not going to hit at practice anymore. You know, we'll work right. on, on form, but we're not going to hit in practice. And, and it's become a model that a lot of folks are, are starting to adopt. And I think, you know, when you talk about these preliminary findings, it, it certainly will, would give some impetus, I would think, to, to making decisions based upon facts as opposed to making decisions based upon fear or anxiety. Well, that, that to us is really the most exciting part of this um, is that uh, I think it offers the field um, – um, an opportunity to make informed decisions about policy. What makes yeah. sense? 
um, you know, if we really are serious about um, um, minimizing uh, the injury and the um, sort of effects of the injury, then let's get some data about it, and then let's uh, let that data drive and inform our decision. I mean, it's something like in football, I think it's somewhere around 60-something percent of the injuries were occurring um, in August and September, so early in the season when there's a lot more practice, a lot more training, and that's driving some decision-making around that. And you're exactly right. I think the Dartmouth experience um, and the... Uh, um, and in fact, the professional experience is let's not have head contact during the week because we don't want our people being injured and having to miss the game. So there's a lot of sort of um, common sense stuff once you start having the data to back it up and can get get beyond the tradition that people are used to. And and I would think especially, and, and look, I, I've said this before, I'm an apostle of, of college athletics and yeah. college football. You yeah. know, for me, it, it got me to college. You know, I was raised by a single mother. You know, playing football helped to get me to Yale. Yeah. Uh, I, I say, and I'm, I'm comfortable enough to say, I'm not so sure if I'm getting into Yale, <laughs> except for the fact that I was being invited <laughs> to play football there. So I, I start off from that perspective, but I also start off as a parent of two Division One athletes and mm -hmm. be very, very concerned about that. But I, I what, what the hope is, is, I think, and you know, there's such anxiety uh, around this issue, yeah. and understandably, yeah, I'm not trying to minimize it at all. A lot of it is driven by anecdotal right. sort of evidence. Right. Is your hope that we will fairly soon, that being a relative term, be able to develop enough science here so yeah. that we can start to answer people's questions to see is this anxiety, is it, is it attached to real science? Um, should it be ratcheted up? Should it be ratcheted down? Yeah, I, I think this is an incredible opportunity. And I think uh, the way this is playing out is that um, this current study that we're talking about uh, is uh, it was geared predominantly towards um, we need to know more about the acute injury. So from uh, the time of impact and injury to, um, you know, uh, up to six months is when we study the uh, get the last time point of reassessment. So that we we talk about that as the sort of short term impact. Now in the past that was a long term right. impact, right? Because you were being returned after 15 minutes. But I think that um, to your point, uh, these concerns about uh, are there longer term um, uh, sequelae of concussion, repetitive concussions, or more concerning, uh, what about just repetitive head impacts that are not uh, associated with diagnosed concussion. I think what we have uh, is an opportunity to take this large cohort of very carefully characterized uh, athletes and um, and service academy uh, cadets, midshipmen, and um, study them uh, over a longer period of time and be able to, uh, we could, if we follow this through, be able to say, yeah, we can tell you how worried you should be about this. And that's really what you as a parent, uh, what myself, when I was uh, trying to make these decisions for our kids, uh, same thing, is that's, that's what you want to know. And um, obviously for the, for the military being, uh, getting a sense of uh, how do we protect these incredibly valuable uh, people that we've invested time, money, and training, and everything else in. Uh, this is the kind of data that we need to know. Well, again, as we said in the introduction, the largest study of its kind uh, being conducted here. Um, it, it sounds as if there's optimism in terms of learning from this, which is what we want to yeah. do. Um, our hope is perhaps as we move forward with this, we can get you to come back in and, and talk a little bit more about it because yeah. it's been a fascinating conversation. Great. Uh, again, Dr. Tom McAllister, thanks so much for spending some time with us. My pleasure. You thanks take for care. your interest. Good. Okay. Does it for us for this edition of the College Sports Insider. We hope to see you back again real soon. Until then.
Take care.